listener, I'm proud to announce the upgrading and overhaul of our Patreon membership. Now referred to as the Black Label Society, this will offer two new tiers, which includes an extra Black Label episode that will run two to three hours, as well as apparel, which people have been asking for for a long time. So think shirts, hoodies, what have you. Now, if you head to our Patreon at patreon.com slash Obscura Crime Podcast, you can see the full details. And I'm telling you, I've been thinking about this for a long time, so you'll want to check it out. Again, if you want access to even larger Black Label episodes that will be exclusive to the Patreon, head to patreon.com slash Obscura Crime Podcast and check it out. You'll get all the details there. I thank you for your support. I hope you enjoy today's episode. This show could not exist without you, and I appreciate each and every listener. And if you can't afford it, I understand. Just please enjoy. Thank you for listening, and keep the fire burning. The fastest way up to the top of Mount Tubkal is a two-day journey. It's a simple up and down via the same trail from Imlil, Once in Imlil, you take a four-hour walk up the mountain to the refuge and spend the night either in a tent or dorm. On the second day, you walk from the refuge to the summit. After spending time at the summit, you trek back down the mountain all the way back to Imlil. There are many different paths you can take to get to the top of Mount Tubkal. This is just one example. The victims were on vacation together in Morocco, 24-year-old Louisa Jesperson from Denmark and 28-year-old Marin Ullen from Norway went to college together. Their bodies were found in a remote region where they were camping. It's a popular spot for tourists. Four suspects have been arrested. Investigators released photos of three of them. Moroccan prosecutors said the men pledged allegiance to ISIS in a video that was made before the killings. There are reports that the women had stab wounds to their necks. Officials say police have video surveillance of three people pitching a tent near where the victims were staying. December 17th, 2018, Imlil, Morocco. It's early in the morning. Two French hikers are on a small hike when they come up on a plateau about an hour into the hike. The hikers discover the bodies of Louisa and Marin on Mount Tubkal, around six miles from the center of Imlil. That's when they saw an open tent and two, quote, broken girls outside of the tent. The hikers snap a picture of where they found the women, then head back down the mountain to contact the police. Once the police are informed of the bodies, the Mount Tubkal area is shut down. The hikers tell authorities there were no other tourists around. It's quiet on the mountain. Why did these women travel to Mount Tubkal? Why were their bodies described as, quote, broken? And how did this lead to the arrest and trial of 24 people? When deciding to cover this case, I worried the subject might still be too hot. On Reddit.com, moderators were removing threads discussing the case, as well as comments that included links to videos of the crime. Denmark pressed charges against 14 people who shared footage of the crime on social media. Twelve people were charged with unauthorized disclosure of the video under especially aggravating circumstances. 
This charge is brought against people who share images or videos of people that they would not want to be made public, such as revenge porn. Two people were charged with apologizing for terrorism. Put your tinfoil hats on, because some suggest that posts, comments, videos, and even websites were being removed due to pressure from the Moroccan government. Apparently, the highly publicized brutal murder of two tourists can have an effect on your tourist industry. Tourism is a major part of Morocco. In fact, Morocco is the top African tourist destination and the 30th most popular tourist destination worldwide. Morocco is an exotic gateway to Africa with beautiful mountains, desert and coast and ancient Medina lanes that lead to souks and riads. From Saharan dunes to the peaks of the High Atlas, Morocco is tailor-made for travelers. The varied terrain creates a dream journey and shapes the very lives of Morocco's Berbers, Arabs and Saharawis. The trick is to leave enough time to watch the world go by with the locals when there's so much else to fit in. Hiking, camel trekking, shopping in the souks and relaxing on panoramic terraces. The popularity could be because Morocco was the only country in northern Africa to have a low risk level at the time of the murders. Risk levels are based on actual threat posed to travelers by political violence, namely terrorism, as well as social unrest and crime. In recent years, the risk level has been upgraded to level two, exercise increased caution. In 2018, 12 million tourists visited Morocco. That number was up 8% from 2017. As of 2014, 40% of Morocco's labor force worked in services. That's close to half of the Moroccan population, who owes their job to tourism. Still, this is no excuse for censoring coverage. In fact, I'd argue that removal of information only makes the whole situation seem shady and suspect. Personally, I don't believe that this sort of information should be kept from the general public. You should be allowed to inform yourself using as much information as possible before traveling somewhere. When I was young, I always wanted to travel the world, get out there, start backpacking, see what the world has to offer. Nowhere was off limits. I felt invincible. But, as cliche as it is, life got in the way. Now that I'm older, I'm not sure I still have the same proclivity for travel. Sure, I still want to get out there, but let's just say with certain areas of the map marked off the list. The U.S. Department of State has a website where you can look up a country's travel advisory, crime and safety report, and more. Travel advisories have four different levels. One, exercise normal precautions. Two, exercise increased caution. Three, reconsider travel. Four, do not travel. 
For context, according to the U.S. Department of State, Denmark is at level two. Exercise increased caution travel advisory due to terrorism and crime in the country. There is only a moderate risk of terrorism, mainly posed by lone individuals with the intent and capability to commit terrorist attacks. Nearby Norway, on the other hand, was given a level one by the U.S. Department of State. Exercise normal precautions travel advisory due to their moderate terrorism threat and crime rate. Although tourists don't have to worry about terrorism, they should still be aware of pickpockets and petty thefts. And, to be fair, the United States isn't free from judgment. While the U.S. Department of State does not have a travel advisory for the United States, New Zealand does. According to New Zealand's Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade, tourists should exercise increased caution when visiting the U.S. due to the heightened threat of terrorism and overall crime rate. The ministry states it's likely that terrorists will try to carry out attacks in the states. As for the crime rate, tourists should watch for petty thefts and pickpocketing. But what about that Category 04 advisory level, do not travel? Ominous, isn't it? What countries fall under this category? For starters, Yemen has a level 4, do not travel rating. Terrorist groups continue to plan and execute attacks in Yemen. Criminal activity and terrorism are rampant, and no part of Yemen is immune to violence. According to the U.S. Department of State, tourists traveling to Yemen should discuss a plan with loved ones regarding care, custody of children, pets, property, belongings, non-liquid assets, funeral wishes, etc. Now, what about where this case takes place? Morocco. Morocco is a level two. Exercise increased caution in Morocco due to terrorism. The advisory continues. Terrorist groups continue plotting possible attacks in Morocco. Terrorists may attack with little or no warning, targeting tourist locations, transportation hubs, markets, shopping malls, and local government facilities. This advisory is important. Take note of it. Morocco is a country in northern Africa, located between Algeria and western Sahara, directly south of Spain. It borders the North Atlantic Ocean and the Mediterranean Sea. The country of Morocco has a Mediterranean climate and is around three times the size of New York State, or slightly larger than California. The country has two mountain ranges, the Rift Mountains on the northern coast and the Atlas Mountains in the interior. As of July 2018, the country has a population of over 34 million people. There are two official languages, Arabic and the Berber language of Tamazight. But the Berber languages Takalhit and Tarifit, as well as French, are also spoken. The population is 99% Sunni Muslim, with less than 0.1% identifying as Shia Muslim. Sunni and Shia Muslims are both sects of Islam, but they have conflicting beliefs. According to Live Science, the Sunnis believe that Muhammad had no rightful heir and that a religious leader should be elected through a vote among the Islamic community's people. The Shiites believe that only Allah, the God of the Islam faith, can select religious leaders. Therefore, all successors must be direct descendants of Muhammad's family. The other major difference between the faiths is that the Sunnis don't believe their guided one has been born yet, while the Shiites believe their guided one has already been born. 
and will return when Allah tells him to. And finally, to finish setting the stage, let's circle back to Mount Tubkal. This is from a trekking guide. Immerse yourself in the vivid culture of Morocco and climb the highest peak in North Africa. With breathtaking views of the Atlas Mountains, green valleys, and endearing Berber villages, Mount Tubkal will not disappoint. The trek may be moderate in difficulty, but the journey will be difficult to forget. That introduction reads like it was written for a brochure, but I think we can dig a little deeper than that. Mount Tubkal is the highest peak in the Atlas Mountains, coming in at over 4,100 meters. Mount Tubkal can be trekked by people who are reasonably fit and determined if it's not winter, and they don't need specialist gear. Most climbers start hiking Mount Tubkal from Imlil, a large village outside of Marrakesh. Imlil is less than two hours from Marrakesh. But what about flavor? Mount Tubkal has great views including mountains, waterfalls, and a great view of the starry sky. It lays at the heart of a network of trekking trails that offer striking altitude mountain scenery, lush valleys, and relatively untouched Berber communities. We've set the stage. But what about the women found broken? 28-year-old Marin Uland and 24-year-old Louisa Vesterager attended the same college and were studying the same major at the time of their deaths. According to the BBC, they even shared an apartment and were training to be guides, and were also working on their bachelors in outdoor life, culture, and eco-philosophy. While looking at photos posted on Facebook, it's clear that both women were very active and were constantly going out, traveling, and doing new things. Marin Ulan was from Norway. Her sister Malin told the local that Marin could have lived where other people would not have believed you could live. Marin's mother, Irene, said she was family-oriented, warm and engaged, and safety-conscious. Louisa Vesterager Jesperson was from Denmark. Her mother, Hella, described Louisa as always happy and positive. Hella also said that everyone loved her and she saw the best in everyone. Louisa's ex-boyfriend, Glenn Martin, described her as funny, full of energy, a bundle of joy, inclusive, caring, and thoughtful. An unnamed friend said Louisa loved challenges and experiences. My name is Louisa, a young lady from Denmark with a burning desire about going into the Arctic. And to represent Denmark in the Fjellreven Polar Expedition 2018, I'm very enthusiastic about outdoors and outdoor activities. I'm studying a bachelor in outdoor life in Norway for the same reason. I'm trying to film a dream to go into the Arctic. But sometimes it takes some detours before you end up where you want. But I'm still working my way towards the north. A dream that has been stuck in my head ever since I joined the Fjellreven competition last year, where I ended up in second place. And I hope, wish, and pray that this time I can achieve my dream. A dream that I can't achieve without your help. A dream about experiencing the feeling of kicking a dog sled through the big Arctic. About feeling the ice crystals in my face and the view of an infinite white landscape. A dream about learning and experiencing the magnificent, untamed Arctic.
There's something inherently awful about hearing something so uplifting on Black Label. Reframed in the context of these episodes, uplifting messages transform into moments of poignant irony. These are women who had their whole lives ahead of them, and hearing their dreams passionately edited into a music montage is a surreal feeling. Louisa reached for the horizons, but instead, she was returned to the void. Louisa's mother begged the girls not to go because she felt like Morocco was a chaotic place. Marin's mother said that the girls took all the necessary safety measures before heading to Morocco. In preparation for a trip to Morocco on November 21st, 2018, Louisa posted on Facebook, Dear friends, I'm going to Morocco in December. Are there any of you guys who's around by then or any mountain friends who know something about Mount Tubkal? Louisa had a strong online presence documenting much of her life on social media. Many of the videos she posted paint a picture of a vibrant woman full of life. Unfortunately, much of it is in her native language. So even if you don't understand it, I'm going to play some audio to give you an idea. Hi, Mina. Altså, jeg ved overhovedet ikke, hvad jeg skal sige, fordi jeg har fået så meget mere støtte, end jeg overhovedet har regnet med, eller tog drømme om. Så på under tre døgn, så har jeg fået over fire... This is the last video Louisa uploaded. This audio has been translated. Hi, friends. I really don't know what to say, because I have received so much more support than I ever had counted on or dared to dream of. Look. In under three days, I have reached over 4,000 votes. I think it's completely wild in regard to being able to participate in the Polar Express Tour. Right now, I am missing about 1,300 votes up to the woman who is on first place. And it is tomorrow at midnight that the winner will be found. So I really hope you continue to share and like and vote as much as you have done until now. Then I think I will reach it. Oh, it's so exciting, but yeah, I don't know what to say. Please help me tomorrow at midnight. Thank you so much. It would really make me happy. The travelers arrived in Morocco on December 9th, 2018 for a month-long vacation. They didn't have a guide with them, which is not unusual for Mount Tubkal hikers. They stayed in a Marrakech hotel before setting off for Mount Tubkal in the Atlas Mountains. On December 16th, the pair set up a tent near the Sidi Chamharouch Mausoleum. While walking the mountains, four men saw Louisa and Marin setting up their tent and decided the two women would be their targets. Police on the scene knew the women had been murdered due to the knife wounds to their necks. They found Louisa decapitated and Marin had deep knife wounds to her throat. Robbery was not the motive as there were no belongings missing from the tent. After searching the area, police found an ID near the scene. The ID was for a man named Abdurrahim Kayali. Police viewed CCTV recordings of three men setting up a tent next to the girls' tent, around 600 yards away, at around 3 a.m. on December 17th. The recordings showed the men later rushing down the mountain, most likely after the murders occurred. One of the men in the CCTV recordings was Kayali. With this information, police arrested Abdurrahim Kayali on December 18th. While speaking with Kayali, they asked him about the other two men in the CCTV recordings. It is assumed that he told police their names. The identities of Luisa and Marin were released on December 18th. 
On December 19th, it was announced that the suspect, Kayali, arrested on the 18th, was part of a radicalized group. It was also announced that three more suspects were involved in the murders. Get started on your resolutions with Factor. Factor's ready-to-eat meal delivery takes the stress out of meal planning and sets you up for success. Skip the grocery stores, prep work, and cooking fatigue. Instead, get chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals delivered right to your door. With over 35 meals to choose from per week, including options like keto, calorie smart, vegan, veggie, and more. Plus, over 55 weekly add-ons. You'll have a ton of nutritious and flavorful options to kickstart your resolutions. Skip the overpriced takeout trap. Factor is cheaper than takeout. Get chef-crafted, restaurant-quality meals delivered right to your door. They're ready to heat and eat in just two minutes, which means more time for you. Need a special occasion meal? Gourmet Plus is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Factor has everything I need for a week of flavorful, nutritious eats. In addition to ready-to-eat meals, they have cold-pressed juices, smoothies, energy bites, extra protein, veggie sides, and more. And they all keep me energized during frantic times. Head to factormeals.com slash obscura50 and use code obscura50 to get 50% off. That's code obscura50 at factormeals.com slash obscura50 to get 50% off. One more time, head to factormeals.com slash obscura50 and use code obscura50 to get 50% off. On December 19th, a video of the murders was uploaded to social media. Social media users began circulating the video around multiple platforms. Some users even sent the video to the mothers of the victims. What I'm going to play for you is audio from the video. The video itself features the beheading of Louisa Vesterager Jesperson. The video itself has been almost wiped completely from the internet. I happened to save it when I first heard of the story. I knew I'd want to cover the case eventually. If you're sensitive to graphic audio, I suggest hitting fast forward now. Once you absorb this kind of audio, there's no removing it from your mind. On December 20th, the additional three suspects were arrested, Yunus Waziad, Rashida Fadi, and Abdesimad Ejud. They were arrested in Marrakesh as they were on board a bus to Agadir. 
Police stopped the bus, then came on board to arrest the men. The suspects had three long machete-like knives, a shorter knife, a slingshot, and multiple cell phones with them on the bus. Later, they seized electronic equipment, a shotgun, knives, military uniforms, binoculars, flashlights, a telescope, military vests, and materials used to manufacture explosives. On December 20th, a video of four men pledging their allegiance to ISIS was uploaded to social media. It was subsequently shared on multiple platforms. The men in the video were Waziad, Ejud, Kayali, and Afadi. Police recognized the men in the video and now knew the motive of the murders was terrorism. They later found out the video was filmed in Afadi's living room a week prior to the murders. I'm going to play some audio from the video. It's not in English. And, considering my demographic, I doubt it's worth playing the whole thing. <laughs> Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. On December 20th and 21st, police arrested nine more suspects who were involved in the murders. The arrests happened in cities all around Morocco, including Essaouira, Sidi Benour, Marrakesh, Tangier, Shtuka Ait Baha, and more. Eleven more arrests would later occur. After interviewing suspects, police found that the murders were not on behalf of ISIS. Waziad, Ejud, Kayali, and Afadi were lone wolves, and nothing was coordinated with ISIS. Police found that the four murder suspects often talked about how Moroccan society no longer lived in line with Islam. They dreamed of traveling to Syria and ISIS but could not afford the travel expenses. Because Moroccan society wasn't in line with Islam and because they couldn't travel to Syria to join ISIS, they formed a terrorist cell and began talking about chemical bombs and attacking police on their own soil. They ended up deciding against those things and decided to attack tourists instead. Waziad, Ejud, Kayali, and Afadi spent four days trying to find their tourist targets. They saw many tourists but didn't kill them because the tourists had guides or locals with them. While walking the mountains, the four men saw Louisa and Marin setting up their tent. Because a target was selected, Kayali headed back to Marrakesh to set up a hiding place for after the murders were complete. The remaining three set up their tent. Then, Afadi filmed Waziad and Ejud killing Louisa and Maren. 
After getting back down the mountain, the three men shaved their beards and went on the run. While on the run, they published the beheading video and the allegiance video online. Yunus Waziad is a 27-year-old man from Marrakesh. He lived with his parents, his wife, and daughter. He had previously been employed as a plumber, but was unemployed at the time of the murders. Waziad was illiterate and very poor. His family and neighbors were shocked after his arrest. His father felt like Waziad had been brainwashed. Waziad's wife said she was also shocked by the arrest. There had been only two problems in their marriage. Waziad refused to work, and he was jealous. He did not let her leave the house unaccompanied. Abdesmad Ejud was a 25-year-old street vendor living outside of Marrakech at the time of the murders. He was considered the emir, or ruler, of the group. Ejud had links to Boko Haram, an extremist group in West Africa. In Marrakech, he formed a kind of cell that discussed how to carry out a terrorist act inside the kingdom. Abderrahim Kayali was a 33-year-old plumber living outside of Marrakech at the time of the murders. Rashid Afadi was a married 33-year-old street vendor living outside of Marrakech at the time of the murders. The men became ISIS sympathizers after watching videos. They wanted to join ISIS but could not afford it. For those unaware, ISIS stands for Islamic State in Iraq and Syria. It started as a splinter group of Al-Qaeda. Their goal is to implement their interpretation of Islam everywhere, the jihadist strand of Salafism. They are a terrorist group who want to conquer the world. Anyone who does not follow their Salafi jihadist beliefs will be killed. It is thought that because of their poverty and lack of education, Waziyad, Ejud, Kayali, and Afadi turned to terrorism. A quote from Kayali's cousin Hassan does a good job to explain this theory. Places like Al-Azuzia are like a timed bomb because of poverty, unemployment, drugs, and prostitution, all of which have caused the disillusioned young men to turn to radical Islam. All four of the men had recently converted to Salafism, a reform branch of the Sunni Muslim faith, often referred to as ultra-conservative. According to Oasis, the basic idea of Salafism consists in following Muhammad and the pious predecessors as closely as possible. Salafists want the religion to return to the way things were with the first three generations of Muslims. In his paper, Salafism in America, George Washington University student Alexander Meliagro Hitchens stated that the primary mission of Salafism is to purify Islam of sinful innovations, which they believe many Muslims have adopted over the centuries. This is why the men felt like Morocco no longer lived in line with Islam. Many of the people around them were not practicing Salafism and were therefore not adhering to their interpretation of Islam. Salafism has a reputation for being linked to Al-Qaeda and ISIS, but as with every religion, not every Salafist is an extremist who believes in terrorism and violence. Scholars believe there are three strands of Salafism, quietist, activist, and jihadist. Jihadists are the only strand that believe in violence. The murder trial started on May 2, 2019 in Saleh, Morocco, but it was almost immediately postponed until May 16th so the defense could strategize. On May 16th, the trial was postponed again until May 30th so Denmark lawyers could join the trial. 
The family of the victims did not attend any of the trial dates. In total, 24 suspects went on trial. Almost all of the 24 accused denied guilt, except for Uwaziad, Ejud, Kayali, and Afadi. Uwaziad, Ejud, Kayali, and Afadi pled guilty. Ejud was on trial for forming a gang to commit terror crimes, intentionally assaulting the life of persons premeditatedly inciting people to commit terrorist acts, praising terrorism, and promoting extremism. He also had charges for using weapons, attempting to manufacture explosives, plotting activities to undermine national security, and a reoffending charge. Awaziad was on trial for forming a gang to commit terror crimes, intentionally assaulting the life of persons premeditatedly, inciting people to commit terrorist acts, praising terrorism, and promoting extremism. He was also charged with using weapons, attempting to manufacture explosives, and plotting activities to undermine national security. Afadi was on trial for forming a gang to commit terrorism, committing violence, and attempting to manufacture terror explosives to undermine the stability and security of the country. Kayali was on trial for committing terrorist crimes, forming a cell, and attempting to manufacture explosives to undermine stability of the country. He was also charged with inciting people to commit terror crimes and praising terrorism. The other 20 men were on trial for their alleged links with the perpetrators of the terrorist act. In 2019, Abdesamad al-Jud, Yunus Uziad, and Rashid Afati were sentenced to death, while a fourth man, Abdurrahman Kayali, received a life sentence. His sentence was lighter because he fled the scene in the process of the murder. The prosecution described the men as human beasts. 19 accomplices received sentences between 5 and 30 years. These three men have just been sentenced to death. They were found guilty of assassinating two Scandinavian women on a hiking trip in Morocco last December. Louisa's mother was asking for the death penalty for the three men, and she got what she wanted. It's a fact-based verdict that respects the Moroccan and international law. It is consistent, and we are 100% satisfied when it comes to public action. It was in Morocco's mountainous Atlas region that the two young women, Marin Uland and Louisa Vesterager Jespersen, were abducted by the three men, who claimed allegiance to the Islamic State group. They were later beheaded, with one of the men recording the assassination on a phone. Louisa's mother, who did not attend the trial in Morocco, says the death sentence means justice will be served. It will bring some sort of justice to our daughters. They go around and kill people. Now they will feel what it's like to be sentenced to death. That's the bigger picture I try to focus on. Justice for our girls and our families. And to prevent them from killing again, of course. One thing I find shocking in all of this is the identity of their ringleader, Swiss-Spanish national Kevin Zoller. According to the Times UK, quote, Kevin Zoller was a hard-to-deal-with kid growing up. The 25-year-old man went through a rough period after his father died when he turned 15. His mother, who currently lives in Madrid, told the Spanish Daily that her son had a difficult adolescence. He smoked weed, burned cars, and committed robberies. Because of his attitude, Kevin was admitted to a youth center where he was introduced to Quran. 
Since then, he converted to Islam and started attending a Saudi-funded mosque in Geneva. When he was 17, Kevin believed that he had demons in his head. One of his old friends told the same source that the Geneva-born man had psychiatric problems and confirmed to him once that these demons used to tell him what to do. Kevin was convinced that the Quran helped him manage and control the demons in his head. Due to his psychiatric problems, the young man used to receive Swiss disability benefits when he turned 18. He kept receiving these benefits even when he decided to move to Morocco. According to one of his friends, Kevin left for Morocco to look for a wife. Two years later, Kevin married a Moroccan woman and they both gave birth to a son. According to his mother, Kevin and his wife were in Geneva when the murders took place. He was planning to plot more terrorist acts in Morocco, targeting security services and tourists. Kevin even trained some of the cell's members to use weapons and recruited sub-Saharan nationals. Morocco changed the rules for Mount Tubkal hikers. For mountain tours, all tourists must have an authorized guide and they cannot start hiking the mountain after 4 p.m. Police have recommended having multiple police stations on the way up the mountain. They also suggested tourists and people hiking must be registered. Listener, how are you? I hope your uh, holidays are going really well. So, yeah, I hope you enjoyed the episode. This was an episode that I always wanted to return back to because the first one felt very anemic, not fully fleshed out, and I think I really struggled with my narration the first time around. I think it was one of my more poor outings in the initial run of Black Label. I wasn't confident with the names, and I probably didn't do enough research, and then with, you know, the pronunciations, a lot of their names weren't exactly on pronouncenames.com or anything like that. You weren't going to find it on YouTube. So even when I thought I had an idea of the names the first time around, I stumbled a lot. But why I'm talking to you now is I want to get into the heart of the matter of the episode. And it's something that might even be a bit of a controversial take. I suppose, but that's that I think sometimes people aren't realistic when it comes to travel, and I got a little bit of blowback for a few of the lines for the Mexico episode for the same reason, but I mean, I think that sometimes people can conflate how they view things should be versus the way things are, and I actually have a story pulled up here to illustrate this. Now, there was a performance artist named Pippa Baca, right? And she would do all of these things in the art space um, to promote feminism, which is great. Absolutely. Uh, nothing wrong with that at all. And well, just reading here. In 2008, Baca started working on a performative piece to promote world peace called Bride on Tour with fellow artist Sylvia Moro. The artist wearing white wedding dresses departed from Milan on March 8, 2008, traveled through the Balkans, and arrived in Turkey 12 days later, 
they had planned to hitchhike through the Middle East, their final destination being Jerusalem. Concerning their attire, they reported on their website that that's the only dress we'll carry along, with all the stains accumulated during the journey. It's a beautiful thought. But then the reality of the situation starts to set in. And remember, I'm just reading off Wikipedia here. This isn't like a full episode or anything like that. It just relates to my overall point with the Black Label episode. After traveling together across Europe, Baca and Moro split up just prior to arriving in Istanbul, planning to meet up again in Beirut. Baca was last seen on March 31st, Her credit card was reportedly used at noon of that day. Baca's naked, strangled, and decomposing body was found near bushes near Gebs. Sorry, I don't know the pronunciation. About 40 miles southeast of Istanbul. The man who led the police to her body, Marat Karadas, was detained and arrested after reportedly confessing to raping and strangling Baca on March 31st after taking her in his Jeep from a gas station. DNA testing suggested that Baca was raped by multiple people. The suspect said he was under the influence of drugs and alcohol and could not remember what happened. Carradas had been traced after he inserted his own SIM card into the victim's cell phone, which alerted police, since he had previous conviction for theft. Baca's own information was wiped from the mobile device, implicating, according to the lawyer for Baca's family, at least one other accomplice since Carradas could not speak English and left school after the third grade. A detective came and knocked on the door. And I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to Season 2 of Proof wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? 
Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. And so there you have this uh, prescient and even um, beautiful idea of, you know, traveling uh through the Balkans and up through the Middle East and through all these cities that uh, some might consider relatively dangerous towards women, you know. <laughs> and the idea uh, didn't outperform the logic. And I think sometimes you might have to make the call that, you know, as a woman dressing only in a wedding dress, backpacking alone through Istanbul, isn't the greatest idea. It's just not. And it should be safe. We should live in a world where that is absolutely fine. But unfortunately, that is not the reality we live in. And those labels on the you know, U.S. travel site you know, warning levels of one through four. They're not just for fun. They're not party favors. They should be taken very seriously. And then sometimes you just have to use basic logic. Personally, I wouldn't be a fan, you know, if I had daughters, um, allowing my daughters or suggesting that to my daughters, even uh, that they go backpacking by themselves through Morocco just even on paper, that makes me nervous. Um, there's strength in numbers. And unfortunately, uh, you know, this is something I've talked about with my wife. It really sucks that women seemingly sometimes live in a different world than men and that it's a lot more dangerous. Um, overwhelmingly, if you're going to be attacked by someone, very frequently it's going to be a male to a woman. And, uh, yeah, it's an unfortunate reality. But, again, it doesn't erase the reality of the situation. And that's what I think of when I think of the Black Label today. Or I think of tourists kind of getting a little fast and loose with uh, some of the areas they visit in Mexico. Because, overall, as a people, Moroccans and Mexicans are great. Absolutely. There's nothing wrong with them. Uh, my best friend in the world is Mexican. Um, but <laughs> as, as a gringo, you know, if I would, you know, was to venture into Mexico, I might want to, you know, look at which cities are known for being gringo safe, you know, and that's just the unfortunate reality. And so, yeah, that's the sort of addendum I wanted to add onto this episode. It's that if you learn anything from this episode, and yes, I do think there are, are things to learn from true crime, it's just to be careful out there when you travel. You know, be careful. Because we don't always live in the world that is presented to us on TikTok and Instagram, etc. Um, the world is a very unfair place. It doesn't care about your ideals or 
your political stances or what you heard in a TikTok video. There's research that can be done to protect yourself and your family, and it's just the reasonable stance to take. Because like in the instance of Pippa Baca, right? She had an awesome message to teach people, right? But unfortunately, that art that she was creating was cut off by vicious and violent gang rapists, of which only one was caught and brought to justice, which is, you know, absolutely horrible. And yeah, that's what I have to say on that subject. Um, I know it might not be popular. I know some people kind of want to plug their ears and pretend that no matter how much evidence they hear that, you know, every place in the world is as safe as the next. And uh, I even can understand why you would want to feel that way, but it's just not the case. But while I have you here, after enjoying an episode of Black Label, I thought, you know, why not talk a little more? Um, I get messages, I, a decent amount of messages, and I try to respond to them all. And actually, recently, somebody on one of the Patreon posts got mad because I happened to miss their message on Patreon, which is extremely unfortunate because I try to respond to every Patreon message. I really do. Like, um, I basically don't respond to emails anymore for the most part, uh, but I do try to respond to every single Patreon message because you guys are my people. You allow me to do this. Um, without you, there would be no Obscura. It's as simple as that. And so, yeah, um, I, you know, get a decent amount of messages. And I would say to this day, still frequently, um, I get the message about wanting to, you know, create a podcast. Uh, and I've kind of went in depth as far as the technical ways to approach things. But I maybe this time I'd like to actually talk more about the philosophical stance to have with it, I guess. Um, beyond the equipment and what you need to do on social media and everything. And this is addressing because I've gotten more messages as far as what to do when creating a podcast or what to do to make it with a podcast. And that's the thing is the thing I want to say with that is to, you need to be happy with the process. Um, that would be what I would tell you. Uh, and success or anything that happens after that, that is something that if you're lucky, very lucky, it comes. And I know I've been very lucky, but you need to fall in love with the process because I didn't even get, you know, started getting paid for any of this till about 32 episodes in four episodes a month, you know, Everyone in my family telling me I'm an idiot, you know, just being honest uh, for doing a podcast back when there was only like five true crime shows or something like that. And nobody even realized that this was like something you could do. But I was doing it because it was what I wanted to do. I, I loved doing it. And so 
my suggestion to you, if you want to create a podcast, is focus on falling in love with the process of doing something, you know, um, and try to be really good at it. Just focus on being the best you absolutely can and giving your absolute all each week and treating it like, you know, if you have a job, like a second job, become obsessed with it, like genuinely become absolutely obsessed with it and uh, make it to where that's all you ever talk about <laughs> when people talk to you uh, to the point that they don't even want to talk to you anymore. Right. It's what's on your mind. Um, it should become uh, just your everything. And uh, once you fall in love with it, then even if success doesn't come, right? I mean, you have this new thing that you've fallen in love with. And that's not just podcasting. I mean, that's really anything, right? And the other thing I want to say with that, I was just watching this YouTuber, and I'm not going to say who they were. <clears throat> but they only get a, you know, something like 50 views of a YouTube video and they've been doing it for like 15 years. On one hand, I commend him. Um, although it's sad, it seems like he stopped, uh, releasing videos about a year ago, but on the other hand, his progress was sort of a flat line. Um, he seemed very obsessed with the equipment and software side of creation and so I guess that's another piece of insight I can give. Don't get obsessed with the tools. Um, there's a subreddit on Reddit called R Podcasting. And they sit around and they talk about microphones and software all day. And, you know, that's fine. It's like, but there's a difference between someone that simply has fishing as a hobby versus someone that's professional fisher, right? I'm sure the professional fisher, they, you know, they're focused more on the catch, whereas the fishing hobbyist is focused on the fishing rod. And so, you know, if you do want to get into something professional, be it writing or podcasting or drawing, etc., you know, it can be really easy to fall in this sort of tool worship or equipment worship or software worship or what have you. And the other thing I want to say, as in again, no slight on this YouTuber. I mean, they'll never, I'm not going to say who it is or anything. Uh, but another lesson learned is to beware of false, false prophets. There are a lot of people on YouTube who give advice. They're professional advice givers. Um, but they have never done anything of success. And there's no issue with that, like not doing anything of success. It is hard to do something and get attention. It's difficult. But when you have someone whose entire, like their whole thing is giving advice, but they haven't done anything before that, that's baffling to me. And that is a surprising amount of YouTube I found. And... I would beware of those people, be it whether you're podcasting or YouTubing or writing or getting into drawing. Look at what they've done, right? If they just seem to be someone who sit on a mic and uh, 
they're just giving out advice, ask yourself, wait, why am I getting advice from this person when that's all they do? And so, um, yeah, this particular YouTuber had, you know, the year leading up to finally calling it quits had tried to, I think, turn more into like an advice guru. Um, and so, <clears throat> yeah, I guess that's some non-standard advice I could give as well. But other than that, yeah, uh, there's that whole imagine Sisyphus happy thing where you just love the struggle, right? You love the process. And I know that as well. That's probably not a popular thing to say. Here's the thing. I'm not uh, romanticizing the starving artist thing. If it was up to me, you would get paid for your art. Um, but I'm saying, you know, from someone that, you know, is an artist or a podcaster himself, um, if you really want to get started, it's going to take months and months and months or maybe even years. And so you if you can learn to love that struggle while you're in the process, um, it would be beneficial because if things don't work out, uh, well, at least you didn't waste your time doing something that you didn't love, right? <clears throat> so, yeah, well, I still have you there here. Um, sorry for the stumble there. I just wanted to say uh, thank you to everyone. Um, I'm, I have a lot of things uh, that I'm working on. Uh, since you're still listening, uh, you know, who knows, maybe some people clicked it off. I will say that this month's Black Label was actually intended to be Ronnie McNutt. I know that's someone that people have requested. That's someone that people have requested for a while. There was an interview that fell through last minute that has left me uh, sc scrambling. And luckily, I was still able to get things done and just, you know, toil away the hours. But, hey, since you're still... Stuck around here, listen to me speak. Just know that the Ronnie McNutt Black Label episode will come. And uh, I, I think it'll probably be the most extensive version of the episode. I know there's like 50, uh, well, not of the episode, of the subject. I know there's like a 15-minute true crime episode of it I see on YouTube or something. But this will be much longer <laughs> than 15 minutes. And... Uh, Ever since uh, I saw that infamous video, I've had interest in covering the Ronnie McNutt case, but I wanted to give it some distance, you know, as some more and more information came out, and uh, so I could really give it my all. Um, I'm not a huge fan of covering things that are so fresh and so um, not filled out all the time. Uh, it's nice to really go in depth. And so now that I'm finally going to cover such a big case in the darker side of uh, content, um, I'm looking forward to kind of give it its due. And uh, yeah, I, I also saw the poll, um, the results of the poll. It seems overwhelmingly people want the big, expansive quarterly episode. And uh, 
I'll be working on getting that whole thing sorted out, kind of like planning it ahead. Because there are some episodes that I've wanted to do for a while, but I don't want to break them up into parts, right? The idea, there's something very satisfying of like a two to four hour quarterly Black Label episode for some of those episodes where I can really have my time to work on it, right? So if it's quarterly and and I release four of them a, a month, I can just gradually work on those individual episodes and finally pull the trigger on some of the cases I've had sat there, but they just seem like such big you know, undertakings. And so, uh, I'll, I'll be figuring that out. Um, that episode will probably be, uh, in a tier, those episodes. Um, I'll be honest with you guys. Uh, you know, podcast ads have been down across the board. I mean, it hasn't like super affected me or anything, but it's notice it's noticeable overall across podcasting. So, Adding an additional tier uh, probably would be helpful in the long run. Um, I have never been one to have like the million extensive tiers. We've usually just had here's the standard content tier and here is the cup tier. And people have been very happy with that. But I think it is probably getting time soon to kind of branch out as far as that goes. Um. And uh, yeah, when, once I get into that, which should be pretty soon as far as the announcement goes, um, I'll have the whole idea more fleshed out and uh, I'll be consulting you guys along the way. I'm sure you notice that I'll drop in and ask questions and do polls and kind of get you the idea of where you guys are at. Um, one thing I'll say is that uh, I appreciate that you guys have been warming up so much to the disaster episodes um, with certain episodes, you know, appealing to you guys more than others. Um, but I know when I first introduced adding these, you know, through like the Patreon and like a separate feed and everything, there were some people that had mixed feelings about it and it did have its growing pains, but it's a fun way to add a sort of mix um, to the usual content uh, generation. And uh, yeah, I've got to flex my creative muscles as far as that goes. But before I uh, go, I just want to say my Patreon inbox is always open. If you have ever, you know, any ideas or questions or just anything, you know, I'm free to be written uh, and I'll always respond to you guys on the Patreon. I can't promise as far as the emails go. In fact, I usually avoid them just because there's like, it gets overwhelming, but you guys, you guys are my people. I'm in a, you know, inbox is open, but yeah, I think that about wraps things up. Thank you for listening and keep the fire burning.
BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.